our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, that we can call you our Father. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father and you have ransomed us for yourself through Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given to us your word so that we might know you and that we might know best how to live for you. Father, we thank you today for this portion of Matthew's gospel and we pray that as we uh, read it together and as we think about the implications for our lives, we pray that you would so fill us with your spirit. We pray that you would grant us repentance and faith and joyful obedience. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I wonder um, if you've seen those signs, those big signs. Uh, they're really large and attention-grabbing, and usually they're offering some awesome deal, and it's designed to lure you in. Shout out if you're a marketing person. Uh, but as you walk to the sign and you take a closer look, you find in tiny little writing some disclaimer. It's usually at the bottom of the ad, and it tells you generally uh, the lesser attractive conditions of the offer. So for example, recently I was walking around Chatswood uh, Westfield, as I like to do, and I saw a sign, a big sign, for men's shirts. Big, bold text. It said, 50% off. And I'm like, what? that's not bad. 50% off men's shirts. That's actually a good deal. That means it's half price. So, of course, being an intelligent man, I walked in to have a closer look and to see the range and see if they have my size. Uh, as I walked closer to the shop, I saw at the bottom of the sign in tiny writing, when you buy two or more items of equal or greater value. And then I walked away. I don't do that. Suddenly, this wonderful, amazing deal, it wasn't quite appealing after all. Like a wise man once told me, the large print giveth and the fine print taketh away. But friends, when it comes to Jesus, and when it comes to what Jesus has to offer, there is no fine print. When it comes to Jesus and the life that he has to offer, there is no terms and conditions. There's no gimmicks. There's no tricks. It's not conditional. There's no fine print. There is nothing hidden. And as we're going to see today in this passage, Jesus is actually very, very upfront with his terms and conditions. He's very upfront with his expectations. Jesus is absolutely clear that if you want to follow him, then the cost to you personally will be huge. If you want to follow Jesus, he says, the personal cost will be massive. Well, today we want to look together at the second half of Matthew chapter 8. Uh, to put this in context, uh, at this portion of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has now finished his sermon on the mount. He's come back down from the mountain, and then he's healing people. He's doing ministry. He's casting out demons. He's preaching God's way. And so now, word has gotten out about him. You know, I guess people are, are putting this on the stories, right? Pushing it through the TikToks. Everyone's heard about Jesus. Everyone is rushing to listen to Jesus and to watch Jesus. All the crowds are coming. But then, when Jesus sees the big crowds of people coming to him, he decides it's now time to jet. He decides, now I'm going to get into a boat and take off for a little while anyway. So he gets into a boat. The boat is meant to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And so Jesus gives orders that this boat be made ready. But while that's happening, a couple of men approach Jesus and they want to talk to him. Both of these men, they're actually really interested in coming with Jesus. 
These two guys are would-be followers of Christ. The first man, we're told, is a scribe, a teacher of the law. He's a religious leader. And he says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In other words, if you're going to cross that lake, I want to come with you. Wherever you are, I just want to be there. I want to follow you. Which is pretty impressive, right? That's not bad. And you would almost expect Jesus at this point to respond by smiling at the man, right? And saying, good on your sport. Good choice. Let's go. That's what you'd expect, right? But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus turns to this man, this scribe, and Jesus takes the opportunity to clearly spell out for him what it will mean if he actually wants to follow him. Jesus says to this man, he says, if you really want to follow me, then there's something you need to understand. Foxes, you know, little cute animals, foxes, they've got their homes in the ground. Birds, they've got their homes in nests. But me, I don't have a nice, warm, safe comfortable bed to lay my head on each night. It's rough. In other words, Jesus is saying to this guy, if you really want to follow me, then you need to realize it's going to cost you. You see, we're going to, we're going to live on the road. We're going on a journey. We're doing ministry and it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you the comfort and the security of your home. So are you really sure that you want to follow me? It's at this point, the second man, the second would-be follower, breaks in and says to Jesus, Look, Jesus, me too. I want to come too. Where do I sign up? I really, really want to follow you. But, give me a sec, there's something I have to do first. Jesus, just wait for me. There's one thing I've got to do. Let me go and bury my father. Let me do that. And then after that, I'm all yours. I belong to you after that. I'll do whatever you want. After I bury my dad, then you can have my full allegiance. Now, uh, a quick side note here, the exact details of what the second man is actually asking for, we're not really sure. Like, has this guy's dad just died? Is that it? And so is there like a funeral that he needs to plan, a funeral that he needs to attend, maybe a will to take care of? Is that it? Or is it that his father's actually still alive? And this man just feels that he needs to stay with his father, like any good son at this point in history in this part of the world. Maybe he just wants to be a good son to his living father, maybe help out with the family business, look after his mom, children, things like that, until he dies, and then he buries him, and then he's going to come follow Jesus. Is that it? Well, we're not told. And we're not given the details of uh, the exact circumstance of the second guy. But either way, what is obvious is that this man feels a strong obligation to his family. He feels a strong relationship to his family, a strong responsibility to his family, and the expectations that his family have for him. He wants to be loyal to his family, which is a great thing. He wants to be a good son. That's good. And so it's really quite shocking when Jesus responds to the second guy by saying, no, no. If you really want to follow me, then you come now. If you really want to follow me, then you follow me now, now, and you let the dead bury the dead. Now, the issue here is not that Jesus thinks family is a bad thing. The issue here is not uh, that Jesus thinks attending family funerals is wrong. No. The issue here 
is that the boat is about to pull away. The boat is going to leave soon. There's not much time for him to make a decision. Jesus is about to leave. And so this guy, he has to make his decision now. Right here, right now, is it allegiance to family? Or is it allegiance to Jesus? And here we see that Jesus demands that he and he alone have first allegiance over and above family, even family. So again, what we see here is Jesus spelling out very clearly the huge personal cost that comes to those who want to follow him. Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 22. Verse 18 to 22. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man, that is himself, has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. There's a lot here, but I'll tell you what's not here. Fine print. Can you see that? There is no fine print here. There's no terms and conditions. Jesus is crystal clear. In big, bold letters, Jesus spells out to these two men that if they really want to follow him, it's going to cost them big time. It's going to cost them their comfort, their security, their stability, and it's going to cost them even family being their first priority. And so I can't help but wonder, what happened to these guys? What happened to these two men? What decision did they make? They certainly seemed very keen on following Jesus, right? But when push came to shove, were they actually willing to sacrifice all these things to follow Jesus? Were they actually willing to give up comfort, security, stability? Were they actually willing to give up family devotions to follow Jesus? Well, unfortunately, we don't get to find out. We're just not told. We're left wondering. But I do hope that these two men were listening carefully to what Jesus said to them. Because if they did, they would realize that following Jesus doesn't only involve a cost if they were listening carefully, they would have realized that there's actually something that Jesus offers in return that far outweighs the cost. Did you see it? Did you notice it there when we read? It was alluded to when Jesus said these words, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I wonder um, if you've read this before and you just thought, what the heck? Right? You read this, you're like, how do dead people bury people. Like, how do dead people bury dead people? The answer is, Jesus here is talking actually not about physically dead people, right? He's talking about spiritually dead people, people who died without salvation. So essentially, Jesus is saying, anyone who doesn't follow me is spiritually dead. And so you two leave them to bury the physically dead. Leave the spiritually dead, the ones who are condemned, let them deal with the physically dead, but you follow me. Which, of course, implies 
that Jesus is also saying to these two men, follow me if you want to live eternally. Follow me if you want spiritual life, which of course in the context of Matthew's gospel so far means life in God's kingdom. Life with God's blessing now as he takes care of all our needs and ultimately eternal life, a place we're told like a heavenly feast, like a great banquet. And so yes, friends, we see the cost of following Jesus is very, very high. But even here we can see that Jesus claims the the prophets, the returns, will be extraordinary. It will be so worth it. Jesus can give his followers life spiritual life, eternal life, life in God's kingdom, a satisfaction that you've never known. So maybe you're sitting here at church today, not yet a follower of Christ, and you've been thinking about it. You're like, I go to church, you know, every week. I hear about Jesus. He loves me. He died for me on the cross. Forgive me of my sins. He rose again in victory. All these things. What does it mean for me? And I believe for you, Jesus is saying today, follow me. Because there's a satisfaction you have not known that you will enjoy. But Jesus, uh, he makes these big claims, but can he deliver on this? Right? He talks about eternal life, talks about salvation. Can he actually deliver on these claims? Can he give them the life that he claims? If not, it will be stupid to follow Jesus. It will be stupid to bear the cost, the sacrificial cost of following Jesus. It would be crazy. So the question is, logically, can he? Can Jesus really give this life? Well, we find out next, because the boat is ready to depart. So Jesus gets in this boat with his disciples, those who have said yes to bearing the cost of following him. They get in the boat, and together they sail across the lake. After a while, Jesus gets sleepy. Uh, Jesus gets sleepy. He's fully God, fully man. Jesus gets sleepy, and true to his claim that he's got no warm, comfy, safe bed of his own, he falls asleep right there on the boat. After a while, we're told that a huge storm A huge storm builds up on the lake and the wind starts to toss this little boat around. As the waves start pouring over the side of the boat, the boat starts to fill up with water and the disciples are petrified. They're terrified. You've got to stop right now and just realize that at least three, at least three of these disciples were professional fishermen. Think about that. Not only were at least three professional fishermen, but they were fishermen of this region, this lake, the Sea of Galilee. There's no doubt that these three professional fishermen have been out on this exact lake hundreds of times before, maybe thousands of times. Even as little boys, they probably would have followed their dads, who were also fishermen, out onto the Sea of Galilee. So on this boat, we know for sure there's at least three professional fishermen who knew how to swim, They're not afraid of the water. They're in it more than land, really. They knew this lake very well, and so they know that storms are common, so they're not usually phased. They know what rough weather is like, and so when we read in the text that they were terrified, it tells us something about the magnitude of this storm. It tells us something about the sheer magnitude of this storm. When these professional fishermen who fish this lake their whole lives, when they're absolutely convinced that they're going to die, We've got to realize, humanly speaking, they're right. They are going to die. No one's surviving this. This is expert opinion. They would know. No one's surviving this. They know that they're as good as dead. 
humanly speaking. In their terror, the disciples run to Jesus, who's still sleeping. They wake him up and they cry out, Jesus, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus wakes up. He looks around at what's going on. I'm sure it doesn't take long. And before he does anything else, he turns to the disciples and he rebukes them. Not because they've woken him up from a nap, that's what I would do. But he rebukes them because they've failed to trust him. They've seen the miracles. They've seen who Jesus is. They they know what he can do, but they don't trust him. And so he rebukes them and he says, you of little faith, such little trust, why are you so afraid? Out of all people, you should know me. After he rebukes the disciples, Jesus turns and he rebukes the weather. He turns to the wind and the waves. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And immediately, without hesitation, the wind stops blowing and the waves die down. And everything on the lake is calm. Still waters. This is extraordinary. We just read this and we're like, oh, interesting. No, this is crazy. So extraordinary that the disciples who are left there, they look at one another and they ask this question. Who is this man? Seriously, who is this guy? What kind of man is this that even the sea, the wind, the waves obey him? Look with me there at chapter 8, verse 23 to 27. Verse 23 to 27. As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. And I guess if the disciples had the presence of mind at the time to recall Psalm 107, which they had, which they knew, that was our first reading today, Psalm 107, where God himself is seen calming the storm after terrified sailors cry out to him, maybe if the disciples could remember that psalm, maybe they would know what kind of man Jesus is. Maybe they would get it. This is the God-man. I think that even in asking the question, these disciples are starting to understand. They're starting to get it, but they're not quite there yet. They're starting to get who Jesus is, but they're not quite there. But what's really interesting here is how, humanly speaking, these disciples were as good as dead. On the boat, they're dead men. They were as good as dead, but according to Jesus, they had no reason to fear death. All they needed to do was trust him. After all, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus told the disciples that if they followed him, he'd make them fishers of men. Remember that? That was Matthew chapter 4. He said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And if that's what Jesus says to you, then he's not going to let you die before you complete the task that he gives you. You're going to be fishers of men. You're not going to be swimming with the fishers. They just needed to trust in Jesus. Jesus has a mission for these disciples. So, of course, he's going to preserve their lives. Well, after a while, the boat pulls up on the other side of the shore other side of the lake, we're told that it's a Gentile region called the Gadarenes. And as soon as Jesus gets out the boat, he's met by another two men. This time, two men who are in really bad shape. Two men who are not in a good place. We're told that these two men are demon-possessed. Two men who have had their lives taken away by demons. 
two men who have had their lives robbed by demons. These two men, who similar to the disciples just moments before, as good as dead. These two men are alive, but are they? And so it's appropriate that these two men even live among the tombs. They're like the living dead, if you like. They're scary. These two men are violent. They're demoniacs. They're so violent, we're told that no one is able to pass by this place. They're really, really scary. But interestingly, here, it's actually these scary demons who are possessing the men who are scared. They're scared of Jesus. They're scared because they know who Jesus is. Because they know what kind of man Jesus is. He's the God-man. He's the Son of God. The one who on judgment day will cast these demons into hell. And so here are these once terrifying demons now pathetically begging Jesus. Oh, if you drive us out, please be nice. Please let us go into the demons who are feeding on that hillside. Please send us out to those demons. Interestingly, Jesus grants their request. He commands that these two demons come out of the two men, and he allows them to go into the herd of pigs. Pigs, I'm sure, who probably weren't very happy with this decision, but these pigs are now demon-possessed, and they run down the hillside, they run into the lake, and they drown themselves. I'm sure you'd agree. It's not a good day for the demons. It's not a good day for the herd of pigs. It's not a good day for the bacon economy of this town. Legit. Think about it. But what a great day for these two men. For these two men who were prisoners to these demons, but now Jesus set them free. They were once dead, but now they're alive. Can you see what's happened? Jesus has brought these two guys from death to life. These demons, gone. They were once living among the tombs. Now these two men could really live. Why? Because Jesus gave them back their life. He restored to them their life. It's a wonderfully uplifting story. Or at least, it would be. It would be, except for the way that this story finishes. Because certain other men were there that day, looking after the pigs, and they see all this happen. And unsurprisingly, they run back into town. They tell everyone all about it, all about what's happened. They tell about Jesus. They tell, Jesus, uh, they tell the crowds about the violent, demon-possessed, tomb-dwelling men who now have their lives back. And of course, they tell them that all their pigs are now dead. So in response, everyone in the town, the whole town, comes out to meet with this Jesus. And when they do, they beg him to leave. We don't want you here. Jesus, please go away. Look with me at verse 28 to 34. Verse 28 to 34. When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So, when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Shake my head. Right. 
What a letdown. What an absolute disappointment. I don't know about you, but when you read this, don't you just want to scream at these people? What are you doing? Are you stupid? Are you blind? Can't you see who this man is? Can't you see what he's done? Can't you see his kindness? His mercy? Can't you see his compassion? Can't you see his great power over the demonic forces? Can't you see that he gave these two men their lives back? Two families have their sons back? Can't you see? And can't you see that he can also give you life? Eternal life in God's kingdom? Can't you see that he can give you a life free from demonic spirits? And what? You want to send him away? Because he cost you your pigs? It's so sad that this town, they, they couldn't see beyond that. They couldn't see more than that. And I'm afraid it's on that disappointing note that today's passage ends. That's the passage. So I have to ask you, what have we learned? That's what the passage says. What can we learn from all of this? Well, a number of things. Firstly, we've learned that with Jesus. There is no fine print, right? Jesus is crystal clear. He says, following me comes at a heavy cost. If you want to follow me, there's a price to pay. It's a very high personal cost. It'll cost you your comfort, your security, your safety, your stability. It'll cost you. If you want to follow me, it'll cost you any loyalty that competes with me. It'll cost you any competing loyalty, even the most important one, family. And in our passage, we've also learned that Jesus claims to offer life to everyone who follows him. Spiritual life, eternal life, a demon-free life, life in God's kingdom. And more than that, we've learned that Jesus is actually able to deliver on this claim. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks it. Here is a man who calms the seas and the waves. This is the God-man. He saves the lives of these pathetic disciples in the storm. He saves the lives of these two poor demon-possessed men on the other side of the lake. These are all things that we can learn from this passage. And so new life, as we think about all this, I think it leaves us with a certain question, with an obvious question, I think. I think as we look at this passage, it leaves us with a question that demands an answer. The question of whether or not you are willing to actually bear the cost of following Jesus. Following Jesus, if it doesn't cost anything, it's easy. It's even kind of popular if you're an immigrant kid like you and me. Your friends go to church, so you go to church. You sing the songs, you pray the prayers, you sleep through a sermon, you attend a small group, you go to camp once in a while, easy. But if following Jesus begins to cost you, like actually cost you, well then it's different. Because church, the fact is, you and me are also called to follow this same Jesus. I don't care where you're at in your life or in your faith journey. You might be a believer, you might not yet be a believer. Jesus calls us to follow him. Now, of course, I know that we can't do that in a literal sense. There's no boat, right? We're not going to find him at Rhodes and cross over to, you know, Meadowbank or something on a boat. It's not like that. Uh, Jesus is not around on a boat anymore. We can't see him anymore in that sense. But we are still called to follow him. 
So how is that possible? Well, fast forward. At the end of Matthew's gospel, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he called his first disciples to go out and make what? Make what? Disciples. Matthew 28. He called them to go out and make disciples for him. Remember, that's what he said, Matthew 28. He says, go, make disciples from all nations, from all over the world. And when Jesus said that, he was very clear on how that was meant to be done. Jesus says, go and make disciples of me, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And very comforting, he says, and I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So, church, let's apply this thing. What does it mean for you and me today to be disciples of Jesus? How can we be followers of him today? Well, I think it means obeying Jesus' teachings very clearly as they're recorded for us by the disciples. I think, application, we need to obey what Jesus says through the scriptures. We need to read the Bible, see what Jesus says, and obey it. We need to submit every area of our lives under his authority. We need to hold nothing back. It's not like Jesus, you can have 95% of me, but my wallet, you can't touch my wallet. Jesus, you can have 95% of me, but don't tell me what to do with my boyfriend. Every area of our lives must be submitted under King Jesus and his authority. We can't hold anything back. Christians, we are called to be 100% devoted to Christ and his mission in the world as revealed to us in the scriptures. So, let me ask you the question again. Are you willing to bear the cost of following Jesus? Because I don't doubt that all of us here today have some kind of interest in Jesus. I don't doubt that. Every one of us has at least some kind of an interest in Jesus. Just like that big crowd that flocked to Jesus, right? At the beginning of today's passage. But then when you keep reading, you realize Jesus wasn't interested in the people who were interested in him, was he? Jesus is not out here looking for fans. He's looking for followers. Jesus is not out here to entertain people. He's here to save people. He's here to lead people. People need to actually follow him. And it's the same today. Jesus wants followers. In other words, people who are ready to put devotion to Christ before their love of comfort, before their love of material things, before their love of safety, security. Because my sister, my brother, there will be times, if you follow Christ, where he will ask you to give those things up. There will be times. There will be times where Jesus will ask you to give up things that you've worked very hard for over many years. So for example, when you adopt a lesser standard of living in order to invest more money into the kingdom of God that's eternal. Or for example, when you choose the smaller house or the older car, or whether you choose not to update your two-year-old phone and computer. It'll cost you. It'll cost you. Or, for example, when you give up some of your precious free time in order to serve your church family. Are you serving your church family? I hope you are. As a pastor, let me tell you, the worst members are those who don't serve. Straight up, you can't fire me, right? 
In my mind, I've got a metric. Again, look, this is not canon. This is just Matt Kang, free advice. If you've been attending this church for at least three months and you're not serving, something is wrong with you. If you know the gospel, but you just attend, and you just receive, 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 but you don't give, you don't serve, you don't encourage others, you don't contribute to the mission of the church, dead weight. Church ain't no game. For example, when we have to give up some of our precious free time in order to reach out with the gospel to our unbelieving friends. For example, when we choose to, I don't know, maybe play less computer games so we can spend more time in personal prayer and scripture reading. It'll cost. There's a personal cost. Or for example, because of your gospel convictions, maybe you don't take that promotion at work because then you know it's going to make it hard for you to be a godly spouse or a godly parent, or a healthy church member. Or for example, maybe when you choose to stay at home altogether to disciple your child in the name of God, it'll cost. At every stage of the Christian life, it'll cost. For example, maybe when you sacrifice your precious sleep, or your precious Netflix time, or your precious sport time. These are all great things. But it'll cost you to make time to encourage other believers. It'll cost you to grow in your understanding of godly theology and to read good books. It'll cost you. It'll cost you to make time to read about the unreached people groups and to pray for them. It'll cost you to build relationships with missionaries so you can pray for them and send money their way. It'll cost you. It will cost. If you're a full-time worker in Sydney, you're probably working maybe 50 hours a week on average. You do the calculations. It doesn't leave much time left. The question is, how can I be a faithful follower of Christ? You manage your work hours. How can I be a healthy church member? Is there someone I can read the Bible with at church? Is there a newcomer I can buy a meal for? Is there someone I can pray with? It'll cost you. It'll cost you when because of your gospel convictions, you decide not to date that pagan girl, that unbelieving boy. I tell you right now, um, my young Christian friends, if you're a Christian, don't date an unbeliever. It'll ruin you and it'll make your marriage extremely, excruciatingly difficult and even harder when kids come along. Don't do it. It's Christ first, Jesus first, Everything else is a far distant second. It'll cost you to follow Christ. This reminds me um, of one of my close friends. Well, I have a friend. He has uh, unbelieving parents. My friend came to Christ in uni, uh, but his parents are very wealthy. They're very, very wealthy. And when their son became a Christian, and he told them about the need for Christian missionaries in unreached nations, his parents were aggressively against him. They wanted him to take over the family business. They told his, their son, don't go to Bible college, that's stupid. But he prayed about it, and he did. He dropped out of uni, and he went to Bible college. His parents were so upset, they told him, they're like, if you dare go overseas as a missionary, we're going to cut you out of the will. We're going to cut you out of our will. You're going to get nothing when we die. What that means is, if when their father dies, 
my friend gets nothing, no money. He would receive nothing, not even a cent, from the millions and millions of dollars that his father would leave behind. So, my friend, he prayed about it. He read the Bible, and he saw a clear command from Jesus to go. In the Bible, he sees a command. In the nations, he sees a need. And so he went. He went overseas as a Christian missionary. A few years later, both of his parents died. And true to their word, my friend received nothing. For some of us, there will be times when obedience to Christ might require you to disappoint your family. I know that there are certain young men and women who desire to go into Christian ministry, but their so-called Christian parents say, that's for someone else. Christ first. The gospel is clear. Parents, as amazing as they are, they're not Jesus. They didn't die for you on the cross. We don't worship our parents. We honor them. After we honor Jesus. Friends, there's a lot of ways that we pay a personal heavy cost to follow Christ. As we get older, maybe for some of us the application is this. Maybe for some of us sacrifice is when your child decides to give up the career that you worked so hard to give them in order to follow Christ in mission work. It will cost. So again, my brother, my sister, are you willing to bear the cost of following Jesus? You know, let me ask you, is there something that God is putting his finger on in your heart right now? Maybe there's something that's getting in the way of your full devotion to Christ. Maybe there's something in your life that's keeping you from wholeheartedly following King Jesus. It can be really, really hard to let those things go, to let those treasures go. But then, you know, Jesus did not say, broad is the road that leads to life. Many find it. No, he says, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. And maybe now we're starting to understand why. So, friend, let me again ask you, are you willing are you willing to bear the cost? Or are you going to be like the guys at the end of the passage with the gatherings that are saying to Jesus, Jesus, go away. Friends, Jesus offers us eternal life, life in God's kingdom. It's true. Sacrificial, it'll be difficult, but it's so worth it. I love, I love how the 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle puts it. He said this, I grant, it costs much to be a true Christian, but who, in his sound senses, can doubt that it is worth any cost to have the soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew think nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, a man will submit to any severe operation and even amputation in order to save his life. Surely, a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. New life. What stands between you and heaven right now? Because it's time to throw it overboard. 
What stands between you and the life that Jesus offers you? Because now it's time to cut that off and throw it away. Because now it's time to bear the cost and follow our Savior. But as you do, as you do, remember that soon and very soon we will be in heaven. And when we're there, we're going to see things as they really are. Let me end with the words of J.C. Ryle. The presence and the company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below when we see as we have been seen and as we look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could ever doubt on which side of the balance the prophet lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian, but it pays. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus, our Savior. Father, thank you so much that in him we have true life, life in your kingdom. Our Father, we are sorry for the times when we've been unwilling to bear the cost of following him. Please forgive us. Our Father, we pray that all of that would change from this day on. We pray that we will be willing to put our devotion to Christ before any comfort, before any material things, before any worldly things, that your spirit would help us to put our devotion to Christ before any competing loyalties, even family. And as we do, Lord, please help us to see things clearly now. Help us to never doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Our loving Father, we, we really, really look forward to heaven when the struggle will be no more, where sin will be gone, and where we will have an eternity of reaping the rewards that come from following Jesus, our Savior. Father, help us as individuals and as a church family to deny ourselves, to carry the cross, and to make disciples for the glory of your name. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.